0: Welcome to Why We Marathon, a podcast diving into the deep motivating factors for why people choose to run marathon races. Today, I'm excited to share part two out of three of our interview series with world-famous running coach and Olympian Jeff Galloway. In today's episode, we cover how Jeff qualified for the 1972 Munich Olympics and what it was like to be coached by the legendary Bill Bowerman. We also share a funny story about Steve Prefontaine and what it was like to be in the Olympic village during the terrorist attack against the Israeli team. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's fast forward um, a little bit and talk about the Olympics. So, you qualify, that has to be such an incredible feeling. What was sort of that, the, the training going up to the Olympics, and what was it like once you landed in Munich?
1: Well, we uh, actually had an extended tour courtesy of Bill Bowerman. He felt that it would be best that, to take the team over to. Uh, the same time zone, uh, but up in Norway uh, for three weeks before we went to Munich so that we could get used to the European way of life and run a few races that were low-key races and not be under the gun that we would be in Munich with all the press and and all the other athletes glaring at us and all this sort of stuff. So that was a wonderful experience uh, because we really did get to know the other athletes on the team. Most uh, Olympic teams are only together for a very short time. So you don't really get to know the others very well, but we did. And uh, I treasure that, Uh, it was just a wonderful thing. It was my first international trip ever. And so I didn't really have any experience with that. Um, I didn't know how to peak, Uh, I, uh, I really uh, didn't do a lot of things right and therefore I didn't run as well as I could have, Uh, but I will say that the uh, competition for the time was really very intense in my heat, for example, uh, of the 10k uh, all three people who qualified broke the Olympic record and uh, I have to be honest, I was not ready at that point to break the Olympic record, but that's the Olympics, and that's what you go for, and I got yeah. a whole lot out of it. It reset my expectations, and I stayed pretty much at the world-class level for another nine years.
0: Wow, that is incredible. I mean, what an experience, and I love how you know you bring up the point with, Bill bringing you there a few weeks early really probably helped bond everyone together, get everyone on the same time zone and just, you know, really led to your team's success there. Um, And now, obviously, you know, in Munich, there was, you know, the crazy hostage situation with the Israelis. What was it just like being there during that time? And, you know, sort of one of these world moments that I think a lot of people look back and, you know, they remember probably where they were that day or, you know, seeing it on the TV for the first time.
1: Well, um, here's a Bill Bauman story, we were checking in to the admin building there at at the Munich Olympics. And uh, like so many of these administrative situations, when you've got uh, all these people on a team, and you all come there at once, you wait. And they had to take our pictures, they had to process the IDs, They had to process keys and, you know, all those logistical things are right there. So um, while I was waiting there, uh, I went out to this little patio that was nearby and um, I saw Bill over near the fence of there and he seemed to be checking something out. So I went on over there and said, uh, Bill, what, what are you doing? And he said, ever since World War II, Whenever I'm in a new place, especially in Europe, I look at security and these guys have a lot to answer for here that they're not answering for. And so um, the antennas were up right away. Well, I I went, uh, as I told you, I went by the team office regularly every day because there's always some gossip or something that was going on there. and. Uh, one of the things that that was going on was this whole security issue and uh, Bill was uh, oh he was moaning and groaning about how the uh, the uh, folks in the administration of Olympic Village weren't listening to him and he he told us about this conversation he had because he put uh, in a letter uh, his complaints uh, and he said uh, this could be a very serious situation if something happened and so the mayor uh, brought him in for an interview and and so the mayor asked him point blank uh, what are your reasons for your concern and uh, Bill looked him straight in the eye and said there are two World War One and World War II and uh, those are two
0: pretty good reasons right there
1: you're darn right. And, and so uh, when the incident happened, um, there was uh, an Israeli who lived in the US. He was a race walker uh, named Shaul Ladani. And he had visited with us uh, in our compound uh, several times and he knew exactly where it was. And he was lucky enough to be able to escape out a window when the uh, terrorists were, were coming in the balcony area, uh, the other end of where he was staying. So he was lucky to get away. And he ran straight on over to uh, to Bill's room. He, he knew where it was and he pounded on the door and uh, Bill's waking up at 4 a.m. and going to the door thinking, who the hell is, is there? This is, this is awful. And so uh, Ladani starts just talking really fast. They've, they've broken in, they've killed some of us. And uh, Bowerman said, now slow down. You gotta tell me what happened. Uh, and so he explains that there were terrorists that jumped in and and, uh, and, and Bill said, well, tell them to get out. <laughs> I mean, he was joking, but um, that was Bill, you know. Uh, In the meantime, uh, he notifies the authorities in Olympic Village, the security, and he also notifies the uh, U.S. uh, consulate there in Munich, uh, because Bill's brother-in-law was an assistant secretary of state at the time, and uh, they uh, were able to arrange for a security detail of Marines to come over dressed in sweatsuits and uh, and Nikes uh, who patrolled our dorm floors. And uh, we were very thankful for, for that.
0: Wow. That's an amazing tidbit of history right there that I don't think uh, you'll find anywhere else, but on this podcast. So I, I appreciate you sharing that story, Jeff. It's really uh, amazing to see, you know, Bill sort of forward thinking there thinking about all these different risks. And then obviously, you know, sort of uh, reacting very fast and clearly using some connections uh, that he had to to his advantage. So I'm glad everyone, uh, at least on your team, made it out safely. Now let's let's fast forward a little bit would, after. You
1: like a, uh, Alec, would you like a story about pre in the village?
0: Oh, definitely. Let's let's uh let's stay. Actually, we're we're not going to fast forward quite yet. Let's talk about Pre in the village. What was that like?
1: Well, one one day before the terrorist incident happened, uh, Pre and I were both on the practice track that was just outside the stadium. We were doing uh, a workout there, and we just started talking afterwards, and uh, and I said. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about going into uh, the the center of town. Uh, You want to go? And he said, yeah, sure. Let's do that. So we met up uh, to head down there and we were in the middle of the village. So we had to do this sort of uh, 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 catacomb type thing where you're going in hallways and stuff. And there was this one particular hallway before you get out, to the exit and and get on the tram into town. Uh, This one hallway is where people were trading pins. And so we get up there to this group and they're all feverishly going around with pins. And uh, and I like to trade some pins, you know? Uh, So I started looking around and uh, I got out my pins and I started going over, meanwhile pre is complaining about these, the, uh, these darn pen traders to be spending time training uh, that, you know, what is this stuff? It's BS anyway. And, and I said, well, pretty, actually, I'd like to spend a few minutes, you know, trading a few of these pens, you can go on into town. So he stood there for a little while. And uh, meanwhile, I, I saw a couple of pens I really liked. And one of them ended up being a, a pen from an Israeli teammate there. And uh, to this day, I do not know whether that person survived or not, but, uh, but that's a treasured pen and I've got it on my wall, just just around the corner here. Uh, but um, Pri, after a few minutes, decides that he would start looking around. And when I was ready to go, I just glanced around and saw him. Well, he was making all types of deals or trying to make deals with these pens and going back and forth. And I said, uh, "Pre, you, you want to go into town? He said, not now. I'm trading. <laughs> Whatever Pre got into, he got into 150%.
0: I love that mentality, and I mean that sounds like Steve Prefontaine uh, at his finest, right there. So, thank you for sharing that. I don't know if uh, the nickname "Pen Pre" did that ever take off. Uh,
1: oh, Pen Pre. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we can start a new tradition.
0: All right. <laughs> we'll we'll see if it sticks. But uh, that's a great story, and thank you for sharing that. I mean. You know, legendary, obviously, Steve Prefontaine, uh, may he rest in peace, I think just, you know, sort of an amazing story, two movies about him, a lot more, I'm sure that that you have to share there. Now, let's, uh, let's dive a little bit past the Olympics here. You know, that's sort of, I think, obviously, one of the highlights of your career and your life. But afterwards, you know, you did a lot in the late 70s. I believe you ran, you won the Honolulu marathon. Yes,
1: I did in 1974.
0: Wow. So now a lot of people come on the podcast and they say, I'm surprised how many people have made it to Honolulu, but they say that's their favorite and their most scenic marathon that they've run yet. What was sort of your experience like being in Hawaii that year and winning it?
1: Well, you have to realize that, uh, I had been stationed there four years before. So I knew my
0: advantage, maybe say that again, a little home field advantage you had.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And also uh, being used to the heat and humidity. Um, But I still had friends there. And so it was, it was a great homecoming. And, and really, uh, I really did enjoy my time in Honolulu and, uh, and Hawaii. Um, But um, the race itself was interesting, because it did have a very competitive field in that Frank Shorter was there. Kenny Moore was there. And, uh, and I beat them both. It it's, it's the only time in a marathon that I beat both of them, but there was a reason for that. They had very recently run in Fukuoka. So they had <laughs> a little tired, a super hard race and they were still tired. So I, I was able to, uh, to put them away in that race and win the race.
0: Sometimes you need some of those intangibles.
1: <laughs> hey, a W is a W, right?
0: A, a W is a W, especially out there on the marathon course. So, so that was Honolulu. Now, um, I am curious. Um, I was doing some research and it looked like you were a major part of the Avon international women's marathon event.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, a- anything I've gotten involved with, there's a story because we had to work on that. Uh, Basically, um, one of my good friends, um, uh, starting when I started my business um, in Atlanta, I, I actually started the business in Tallahassee, Florida. I moved the store to Atlanta in 1975. One of the first people that came by the store was a business professor from Emory University named Bill Neese
0: Now, quick and- question. Why did you end up moving from Florida up to Georgia?
1: because the Peachtree Road Race was starting to take off and Atlanta was my hometown. And uh, I wanted to be a part of it. Uh, So uh, moved up, moved back up to Atlanta uh, and initiated my Fidipity store uh, in 1975 in Atlanta. And uh, I uh, started doing some Uh, work with Bill, because right within a few months of my moving back there, the uh, guy who had founded the Peachtree Road Race was going to move out of town, and he recruited Bill and myself and a couple of others to help continue Peachtree, and so we took the race over, And and just
0: for for our listeners, you want to just fill them in on what Peachtree is? Because I think, you know, a lot of runners know about it, but uh, maybe we have international listeners now on the podcast. So maybe just give them a quick, you know, five second rundown of Peachtree.
1: Peachtree Road Race was, uh, is a 10K in Atlanta, initiated in 1970. And I actually won the very first one. Of course, there were only 110 people at that time. Um,
0: A W is a W.
1: That's right, but uh, I, uh, I came back then uh, after a bunch of international summers in which I could not run Peachtree and ran the race in 75 and moved the store then back to Atlanta and uh, Bill Neese and I ran, uh, we managed the Peachtree Road Race for three years out of my store, Fidibity's store. Uh, Well, um, after three years, uh, we decided to pass that uh, leadership on to other people in the Atlanta Track Club that uh, wanted to take the race over. And so we started looking for the next thing that we wanted to do. And uh, Bill had one idea, but, I said, you know, we really ought to do something for women. Women are starting to come into running and they don't have any stellar races and certainly not in Atlanta. Uh, and you know, there's a movement that's just started to bring the marathon for women into the Olympics. And we might be able to do that. And Bill said, you know, in my seminars at, uh, Emory Business School, I got to know the local uh, CEO, the regional CEO of Avon Products. So we went out and met with him, and uh, he thought that it was a great idea. We, we developed a uh, proposal, which he sent up to headquarters in New York. Uh, New York headquarters sent down a team, we met with them. They uh, fired us questions, and then they turned us down, and uh, we were flabbergasted. I mean, this this was just tailor-made at the time for Avon, uh, so we went back to the regional director, Al Modelmog was his name, and uh, said, Al, could you give us another shot here? I mean, th- this is too big an opportunity to pass up, and he agreed with us, and to his credit, he put his advancement on the line by questioning what New York was doing. And he always, hap- those
0: New Yorkers, you know,
1: <laughs> he happened to get the ear of, of somebody right at the top that, that saw what we were talking about, sent down a different team that was more sports marketing oriented. We pitched them again, changing a few things, and they bought it. And so we conducted in Atlanta the very first Avon International Women's Marathon, and we are very pleased to have sold the idea to Avon, and they picked it up, and we put it on, and it was, uh, it was a wonderful experience.
0: That's amazing. And, you know, I just love how you're, you're bringing more people into the sport and into marathon racing here. And especially, you know, back in the early seventies, you know, to your point, just getting more women involved is, is amazing. And for our listeners out there, that marathon series by Avon actually lasted until 1984, taking people to, I believe it was Atlanta, West Germany, the UK, Canada, um, and Paris and a few other places in the U S is that correct. Sound that about is right.
1: Correct. That is correct. And they had a, a number of Uh, lower distance races for the masses. Uh, And fast forward to uh, uh, 1985, that was the year that women's participation really started taking off. and it was the promotion that avon put into that we were very pleased to have been the uh, initiators of that
0: amazing that's just such a great story and i just love how you know you really took the initiative and created something that didn't exist at all and brought it to market and, you know, wild success over seven years. So uh, huge congratulations there. Now I am curious, Jeff, you mentioned it was 200 plus marathons. What was that number you, you threw out there?
1: 236 marathons, 236.
0: Uh, so it's amazing how some people will keep yeah. exact precise counts. Others are like, you know, I lost track after a hundred. So 236, let's run through some of these highlights. What would you say, you know, your favorite marathon was number one?
1: Well, the the marathon with Jack, but but that ties with another marathon that was run <clears throat> in uh, Boston in 1996, which was the 100th anniversary of the Boston Marathon. And uh, I ran that race <clears throat> step for step with my dad. It was the only marathon that we had run all the way together. We had run parts of marathons together. He started running when he was 52 years old. Wow.
0: And And was that because you sort of pushed him into it or how did he, you know, start taking up running at that age?
1: Not at all. I tried to push him in. I tried to lead him with a carrot, but he kept having excuses and gaining weight and getting into health problems. And, uh, and then he, uh, he went over to munich when i made the team and he saw a lot of people that were a lot older than he was he was 52 years old at during munich and he saw people in their 70s and 80s and and sometimes older and they were just walking right on by him on the sidewalks and on the trails and everything and he decided well First of all, he, right after he got back, he went to a high school reunion and out of 25 guys who had been on the football team, there were only 12 that were still alive at age 52. And every one of them had died of degenerative diseases, which his doctor had kept telling him. He so on the long drive back, he vowed to start exercising and running became his symbol of getting back into shape. Well, he couldn't run from one telephone pole to the next when he started, but he did it himself. And, and it, it really reconnected him with all the positive things that had been in his sports history. And he, uh, he actually ended up uh, right when he turned 60 running the marathon under three hours.
0: Wow. That is incredible. Um, Just to put things in perspective for our listeners out there, I'm 30 and my fastest time is over four hours and I would love to get under three. So hats off to your father. And what was that experience like, you know, that um, you know, maybe I'll have to convince my dad to start running and running a marathon. I just got him into the, the Peloton cycling at least. So that's, that's a start, you know, on the, on his health journey, but what was that like running, you know, this one iconic race, the Boston marathon two, it being the hundredth anniversary and three, you know, finishing it with your dad. What was that like emotionally for you?
1: It was, uh, an amazing emotional moment that I still connect up with regularly. I've got the picture two pictures, uh, one right before the start where he and I are together. And then a picture that I took of him when he saw the finish line and he found another source of energy that he had not had for 15 miles in that race. And he started taking off with his hands raised high and, uh, finished with just great strength and, uh, I remember him for that. Uh, the, the bottom line story is that he had a heart arrhythmia issue, and his doctor told him that he needed to stop doing any marathons. So at the age of 75, he agreed with his doctor under three conditions, that he run three other marathons. Uh, one of them was the uh, original marathon in Athens, Greece. I ran part of that with him. The, wow. the second one was the hometown Atlanta Marathon, which uh, was the Olympic marathon course in 1996, and then the third was Boston, and and I ran the the fi- his final marathon with him, and it was just uh, uh, a real treasury for me.
0: Talk about a memory that will just be with you forever. And I mean, that's, you know, that's something marathon running does. It really does create those memories that you'll never forget when you cross that finish line or, you know, your family and friends supporting you that you see throughout the race. It's, it's one of my favorite parts about running and I'm glad I'm really glad you had that experience with your father and, you know, can just sort of cherish that forever and props to him finishing, you know, even after the doctor said not to run anymore, he did three pretty iconic races. So, um, that's amazing. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure he's proud of you and I'm sure you're really proud of him too. So that, that's awesome. Absolutely. I love that Jeff. And, uh, let's, uh, let's talk about, so we had uh, over 200 marathons. You talked about some of your favorites, what was the most scenic one or sort of maybe, maybe an unusual one that most people don't run that you would recommend, you know, maybe a smaller race out there or an exotic destination or something like that.
1: Well, there, there are a number of them and so many, well, marathons have their own personality it it's unlike any other sport out there, but to answer your question, uh, there are marathons that excel because of what the race organization and the community is able to do. And I put them into categories. Uh, For example, for the uh, fun and the chance for family members to be a part of your experience where they whether they run or not. It's the Walt Disney World Marathon. It's a magnet for families, and it transforms families. At uh, every Disney race, uh, I talk with several thousand runners one-to-one and so many stories about how family members got into fitness only because they came to a weekend there and got hooked on it. For the charity, it's the Breast Cancer Marathon in Jacksonville, Florida in February. And and the feeling that you get because uh, almost every penny goes into uh, research on breast cancer and care for women that are undergoing that struggle. And then for the uh, other personal experience, you just have to look around. I mean, there's so many wonderful smaller marathons like the des moines marathon and the capital city marathon in in olympia washington uh, they do great things for the community and they raise funds for the community and they create that community feel that you uh you you don't feel the same thing in the big cities the big city marathons are fabulous they but they're different and uh, you really feel like you're part of the whole thing in, in the smaller marathons. So go ahead and run those big marathons because they're a thrill, but you're going to really feel special in, in the smaller ones.
0: That's a great tip Jeff. Um, I've only done Philly, New York and LA so all big cities. I'm, I'm I'm from the big cities but I will definitely be getting out there after speaking to all of my podcast guests so far. I'll be hitting up some of those smaller ones cuz I do think there's something special about those, you know, more intimate events, the community that you have, maybe a little bit of a smaller town, um, you know, not as many people cheering you on. So it's really, you know, more about you and yourself and the race and then that that smaller community. So I love that tip Jeff. Now let- Thanks for listening to Why We Marathon. Please follow us on Instagram at Why We Marathon and visit our website, www.whywemarathon.com to see additional stories, photos, and recaps of each episode. Please rate and review our podcast and share episodes with your friends and family too. We'll have part three featuring Jeff Galloway coming out soon. Thanks again, and I hope you enjoy listening to these amazing stories of human perseverance.